ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Hello there, it's the Religion and Ethics Report. Andrew West on RN and ABC Listen. Over the next decade, Australia will receive about 235,000 migrants a year. Almost 8 in 10 will come from non-European countries. More than a quarter will settle in Greater Sydney. But as you know, there's a big debate in all our cities about nimbyism. Not in my backyard, cry some. So could resistance to more housing in the city's east and the north end up creating ethnic and religious divisions in Sydney? Professor Awais Paracha is an urban planner and a member of the Prime Minister's Urban Task Force. The five top countries of migration include India, China, England, Vietnam and the Philippines. So they are mostly Asian countries from where these migrants will come. They have people from those countries already living in Sydney or Melbourne. Also, these are the cities where the most employment opportunities are. So in Sydney, where would you expect most immigrants to settle based on the trends over the past two to three decades? It's not even my guesstimate. It's uh, data from the Department of Planning of New South Wales. They estimate that the vast majority of the population growth would be in outer areas of Sydney, 20 to 40 kilometres from the city centre, mostly Western Sydney. In inner areas such as Mossman or inner west, northern beaches, in those areas, the population growth would be a a small fraction of 1%. For example, for Mossman, it would be 0.06% per year. But for outer areas such as Blacktown, Campbelltown, Liverpool, the multicultural areas, the areas which have very high percentage of non-white populations, they will grow anywhere between 1% to 3% hmm. per year over the next 20 years. Is this a phenomenon that you see repeated potentially in other major cities in Australia? Yeah, I think it would be uh, somewhat similar for Melbourne. Some cities such as Adelaide, etc., they receive much less international migrants. Also, they have a different ethnic mix because In our case, what would be happening is that the areas that will grow the slowest are the sort of white areas where the demographic is mostly white. Actually, in some of those areas, the percentage of white population has been growing, even though we have had migration of non-white population as majority of migration over the last uh, decade or so, at least. My estimate is that Most of the population that we will have in outer areas in Western Sydney would be non-white. And these are the areas which are where the percentage of non-white is growing. And the difference between the eastern areas in Sydney and the western areas would be that there will be more and more white in the east and coloured in the West. There would be an ethnic division in the city. Yes, well, Sydney, which is a very successful multicultural and multi-faith city, I I mean, I did look at some data from the OECD and the McKell Institute last night. You say, though, that despite that, it is at risk of becoming ethnically and religiously divided. What would that do to the city? It's never a good idea to have segregated city, because in this case, the other problem is not only ethnic segregation, it is socioeconomic segregation as well. It's an environmental segregation. 
So this segregation will put most of the non-white population into areas with lack of infrastructure, with lack of employment opportunities, lack of transport, very, very hot areas. That kind of ethnic division would be the socioeconomic division, and, and that we know in other cities can lead to resentment or even can lead to neglect in certain parts of the city. So we know the cases from Paris, for example, where the immigrants uh, live in high concentration areas, which are very problematic areas. So we don't want that kind of thing happening here. Mm. Also, Dumping all the new population in the outer greenfield areas is not good for the environment. From a climate change perspective, it is bad. You have to clear land, which would be either wooded land or maybe farmland, to make houses. It's bad socially, it's bad environmentally, and it's bad economically, as the Productivity Commissioner of New South Wales tells us in his recent report. Awayas, we certainly do not want to have entrenched ethnic separation in cities, but isn't there some evidence that having a concentration of uh, particular ethnic communities, you know, a strong Vietnamese area, a strong South Asian area, a strong area of people from the Middle East, can be useful for first-generation migrants because it's a ready-made community. You know, you've got these places where you can network, um, especially places of worship, and you can network for jobs and housing, for example. Yes. The urban expansion we are planning is not in that sort of a form. Cabramatta was an established centre already where the refugees uh, from uh, or migrants from Vietnam came and slowly it established itself as a very desirable place these days where you can have fantastic food and so on and so forth. Similarly, the other ethnic concentrations are Harris Park, for example, which is India Town, which is also quite interesting, or Auburn, etc. So these were existing centers and these population came in. But what we are planning now is these greenfield sprawl areas. And it's very difficult to see how these areas would become these kind of ethnic hubs where ethnic facilities and places of worship, etc., could be made available. Of course, there would be some of that, but not the same sort of phenomena as you see in the places we just discussed. I mean, is there let's be frank about it, a certain level of uh, racism involved here. At this stage, I wouldn't say that there is intentional racism in the affluent white parts of Sydney, but surely there is systemic racism. So it is not individuals or even communities uh, in the East are deliberately doing it, but this is the outcome of their uh, resistance to allow more residential development in their areas, and they are highly successful in that. But having said that, we have to look at some other things. For example, we know from experience that when we try to build mosques, communities quite often resist that very strongly, but they don't say we don't want Muslims coming in here, even though that is on their mind. They say we have traffic problems, we will have congestion. The proposed development is not in line with the character or compatible with the character of the area. Similarly, affordable or social housing is resisted by communities, and they quite often have on their mind who might come in, but this is not something they usually say. In the submissions they make to the councils or the state, they talk about, again, congestion, 
and other concerns, planning type concerns. Is there any uh, data or experience from overseas that may inform some of this as well? Yes, yeah, so there is a fair bit of research in America. In America, they have looked at this issue and they argue that NIMBYism uh, of white communities, and quite often they are small and liberal communities, progressive communities, leads to adverse outcomes for colored communities, uh, especially black populations and Hispanic populations. It also leads to, to economic loss. Uh, one researcher has estimated that it leads to up to $1 trillion of loss for American economy. One researcher, for example, argued that even though these progressive communities are active in movements such as Me Too and Black Lives Matters, but when it comes to allowing more residential development in their areas, they are very resistant to that. So even when it is explained to them that this would have an economic uh, redistributive effect and would allow benefit for the minority communities, they still resist. Actually, in one case, when they had learnt about it, they became more resistant. Professor Awayas Paracha from Western Sydney University, and this is the Religion and Ethics Report, where you're hearing about the links between religion and the news that's shaping the world. Well, the tale of woe for centre-right parties in Australia is that their supporters are literally dying, that they're disproportionately over 50, that younger voters are locked into a lifetime of support for the left. Certainly what the data suggests. But if you look beyond Australia and maybe even beyond the UK and the US, it is not the complete picture, far from it. Dr Sebastian Milbank is executive editor of The Critic magazine and he's been taking a deep dive into this data. Sebastian joins us. Welcome to the program. Oh, thank you very much, Andrew. So what is the popular perception about young voters and their political identification? The typical stereotype, you know, is the lefty student. And of course, more and more young people are going to university than ever before. If you look at the English-speaking world, the correlation between age and left or right affiliation is almost exact. The younger you are, the more left-wing you are, the more likely you are to vote for the Labour Party in, in Britain or for the Democratic Party in America. And also on social attitudes, young people seem to be more socially liberal than ever before. There is a more or less correct perception that young people are of the left, straightforwardly. Well, that is certainly holding in the UK at the moment. I want you, though, Sebastian, to skip across the English Channel, because what have you found about voting trends, first of all, in, say, France and Germany, where the standard bearers are Marine Le Pen, and in Germany, the alternative for Deutschland Party? What did you find there, though, about young people? This is what's really interesting. In Europe, a lot of the trends that hold true in Anglo-Saxon world do not pertain at all. In France, for example, the National Rally Party does best amongst millennials. And so the sort of median Le Pen voter is young, poor, working class, 
about sort of 25 to 35. So that's your typical Le Pen voter. At the same time, the other place where our voters were most likely to go was the far left, so Mélenchon, and particularly millennials were more likely to vote for Le Pen than any other presidential candidate. Now, in Germany, young people are also leaving traditional parties. And in some areas, so for example, in Saxony, there was an election in which young people very nearly swung it for the AFD, the Alternative for Deutschland. In Italy, in Sweden, for example, young people are as likely to vote for parties of the populist right as they are for any other. These parties do equally well amongst young people. Their voters are not dying off. Mm. There's also some interesting differences. So generally, it's working class young people voting for populist right parties. And if we just stay in the Mediterranean, Europe yeah. for the moment, we've had a spectacular collapse of the far left in Greece. Now, this was a party that swept to office about a decade ago on the sort of hopes and optimism, I'm assuming, of young people, but, uh, you know, wide section of the Greek community. What's happened there with the vote of young people? In Greece, you have this extraordinary shift leftwards in the wake of the financial crash, but Syriza completely failed to um, negotiate successfully with Europe. So first of all, there's now a centre-right party in charge. And at the same time, the Golden Dawn, this is a very far-right party in Greek politics, basically a neo-fascist party, has its highest level of support amongst young voters. Young men are the biggest demographic for parties of the really far-right. So not even populist right-wing parties, but actually kind of neo-pagan, neo-fascist parties. Let's talk about why this is occurring, though, Sebastian. The hint was unemployment. Historically, a fear of unemployment used to drive people to the left. Why is that not happening in Europe among the young voters? So I think this is a really good question. Part of it is that the nature of labour and employment has changed. We don't have such a large-scale employment in manufacturing, which means a lot of people are working kind of temporary jobs in the gig economy in very under-unionised sectors. Labour is much less organised and there's less of a working class identity. And at the same time, the kind of major issue for European countries in particular is globalisation. So that's the thing most of all, undermining wages, conditions, causing economic fluctuations, Essentially, the left, which was at the forefront of the anti-globalisation movement in the 90s and early noughties, has essentially collapsed as an anti-globalisation movement. Those parts of the left that still are opposing globalisation, such as Mélenchon in France, are doing well. But where the left has abandoned it, you know, often adopting neoliberal economics or simply kind of failing to have a coherent response, the right has had a much more powerful message on globalisation. So if you think about something like Occupy Wall Street, that was the kind of last gasp of left-wing anti-globalisation, but it didn't go anywhere. Now, you're really hitting on something fascinating here because there's another factor at work here, and that is that while these are parties of the nationalist right to which many European young people are gravitating, is it true that they're not neoliberal, they're not pure free market? Don't they, in fact, talk about shoring up the welfare state? Yes, there are a mixture of centre-right and far-right parties doing fairly well in Europe at the moment. Some of them are more or less neoliberal. 
But there's a substantial trend towards much more statist economics. The well-known example, obviously, is Hungary, where they're trying to kind of invest heavily in welfare services, especially families. There's a big emphasis on birth rates, much more kind of protectionist economics. Again, similar situation in Italy, Giorgia Maloney. She's someone who's very kind of critical of globalization at the same time is much more kind of sympathetic to state intervention. And in your piece for the critic titled The Kids Are Alt-Right, you give Mm. Italy and Giorgia Maloney particular attention. Her party is characterised as neo-fascist. Its origins may certainly be that, although I'm not sure that's as applicable today, hasn't it attracted something like a quarter of all young voters? And I mean very young, not just millennials, but almost first-time voters. It has. Obviously, people will point out this was also an election with a very low turnout. How representative that is, um, is something that people are still debating. But I think it's very significant. You've also seen the youth wing of her party increase from 10,000 to 50,000. And if you look at some of these, these kind of rallies, that they put on, you know, you'll see very kind of active, very engaged young people at the forefront. There's obviously a serious youth movement behind Maloney. And Maloney herself, it's worth saying, she came up as part of the youth movement of the neo-fascist, or what was then at least a neo-fascist movement. She herself was a minister for young people under the previous administration as part of a coalition. And she's also a relatively young politician. And this also is a feature of why perhaps national populism is so successful amongst the young in Europe. Their leaders are unusually young. Candidates in their 20s and 30s often, very active on social media. This is completely different from the kind of politics that we see in someone like America, where you've got kind of octogenarians facing off against each other. Well, the other thing too that defies the stereotype is that we're not just talking about young leaders, we're talking about a group of people that is more diverse than you might imagine. What do you mean? Yes, for example, the Italian Minister for Family is uh, Eugenia Rocella. She's a former socialist uh, and conservative feminist. And so when Maloney is talking about things like surrogacy, she's not just sort of talking about from a kind of pace of Catholic social conservatism. She's also someone who's engaged with questions of feminism. And in the same way, um, you've also seen Maloney talk about neocolonialism. This is a movement that's able to talk to a generation of European young people who are definitely more socially liberal than their parents and their grandparents. But what you see that's really interesting is that, you know, you've got a much more diverse, much more accepting of gay people group of voters, but they're actually being appealed to more successfully by national populist leaders. Let's just finish up by cycling back to Britain, because even though, as you say, most young people at this stage are on the left and are voting likely for Labour at the next election, you've dug a little deeper into the data about their attitudes to liberalism. What did you find? I mean, I think there's a general assumption that young people are idealistically committed to liberalism, whereas I think a lot of the increase in social liberal attitudes is much more about people simply not caring because they're disconnected from religious or socially conservative or national traditions that would once have shaped attitudes in these questions. So a lot of things that people see as a positive engagement with liberal values may actually just be a disengagement from a lot of questions that once occupied society. So there was a 2022 report which suggested that young people in Britain are less committed to 
liberal democratic values than any previous generation. 61% of 18 to 34-year-olds would support having a strong leader who does not have to bother with parliament and elections. Part of it is that liberalism itself encourages, often admirably, scepticism, free thinking, asserting individuality. But when those values are isolated from any others, I think they often lead to cynicism, disappointment, and a lack of faith in institutions. When you combine that with very real structural failures, growing inequality, political scandals, you see a sort of unstoppable process of disengagement from common institutions and life. And you also look at the atomizing effects of technology, and you've got a generation of people who have very little investment in things that were once very important to their parents. They don't think voting matters. They don't think the media tells the truth. They don't think politicians can be trusted. They believe that companies are out for themselves. And I think the idea of like a job for life committing to one employer rising up in a company. These are not features of modern economies anymore as well. We always like these kind of counterintuitive stories on the program. Dr. Sebastian Milbank, executive editor of The Critic magazine. Sebastian, thank you for joining us. Well, thank you very much indeed. And there's a link to Sebastian's article at our website. The biggest, most politically influential Protestant group in the United States has been purging itself of churches that ordain women. The Southern Baptist Convention is a religious powerhouse, 13 million members. Many Southern Baptists are also ground troops in the Republican Party. Well, now the convention also wants to change its constitution to exclude any church where women hold a position of pastor. Professor Susan Shaw teaches women's studies at Oregon State University and is herself an ordained Baptist minister. Back in the 60s, when the first woman was ordained, there really wasn't much of a flap over it. And then in the 70s and early 80s, a lot of women started going to seminary professing a call to ordain ministry. And that's when it really became an issue. So the convention then passed a resolution that said women shouldn't be essentially senior pastors, so the sort of head of the pastoral staff. Technically, the Southern Baptist Convention can't tell any local church what to do. And so the only power they have is to kick them out of the convention because they can't control them. And that's what we saw happen this summer. But the shift has been with this new trend toward kicking churches out and changing the constitution is to exclude women from any role that has the term pastor in it, even if it's a children's pastor. They try to use the Bible to explain why they believe that and to say that Paul said that women were to keep silent in the church and that women weren't to have authority over men. But more moderate Baptists don't read the Bible that way. They read it to be much more egalitarian, but those are the people who are being slowly kicked out. Mm. The Southern Baptist Convention is, I think, still the biggest Protestant denomination in the United States. I'm assuming, Susan, it has millions of women as members of the church. Absolutely. Yeah, it's the largest Protestant denomination. It's shrinking, as is most religious traditions. And I think this is going to probably speed up that exodus a little bit. And it's interesting because a lot of women go along with this. A lot of women 
agree with it. Uh, the convention also passed a resolution and changed its statement of faith back in the 90s, I think it was, or early 2000s, you know, to say that wives were to submit to their husbands. And again, women had leading roles in actually passing that. And so there's this language about submission. I think, though, that there are women who will have a call to ministry who feel that they need to leave or that there are other women who will push back against us and men as well. Yeah. I know that this is creating great conflict. And we'd already fought these battles in the 80s. And so a lot of moderates left then. We're just seeing an ever narrowing range of what's acceptable for women to do in churches and in homes. Yeah, well, this is the, the I guess, the really powerful point, because I'm assuming the Southern Baptist Convention as an organization is following the same trajectory as most most Christian denominations in that it is not only a majority of people who attend the church that are women, but they're probably the most active lay people. How does it square having a very active female membership with this crackdown on women being ordained with any title that has pastor in it? Quite a few years ago, I wrote a book on Southern Baptist women, and I interviewed about 160 women who were current and former Southern Baptists. And the most conservative of them <laughs> told me things like, well, what one said was, you know, man may be the head, but woman's the neck that turns him. And I think that's a lot <laughs> of what goes on is that you have these women, they're very practical. What they'll say is, okay, if men can be the head of things, that's fine, but we know how to get what we need within this tradition. I had another participant in that study say, you know, that manipulation is a tool born of oppression. And I think she was right that women have learned how to work within that framework of male authority and still do what they want. Uh, the difficulty is going to be now for the women who feel strongly a call to ordain ministry, though. And a lot of those actually weren't even ordained. Women who are called children's pastors or things like that weren't necessarily ordained. Um, it's something about that title that they're after now because they think it conveys authority. The church at the center of this latest controversy is the Saddleback Church in California. Why is that so significant, Susan? Well, it's one of the largest churches in the Southern Baptist Convention. And I think maybe the reason it has been considered such a threat is its former pastor, Rick Warren, was a leader. So many other churches, of course, aspired to be like Saddleback. And Rick Warren says that through his reading of the Bible through the years, he had a change of conviction about the role of women. And at Saddleback, we're not talking about women as a, as senior pastors yet. I mean, these were just women with pastoral roles on the staff and the title of pastor. And so I think having a church that is so large, that had been so aspirational for so many other churches, and then have this major leader in the convention have a change of heart was an incredible threat. So I think that's why Saddleback had to be dealt with in such a decisive manner. Yeah, I don't think that the Saddleback Church and the former pastor, as you said, uh, Rick Warren, could be called liberal. He did famous, <laughs> no, but I, I mean, he did famously give a prayer at Barack Obama's inauguration in 2008. And I think he was very strong on climate change. He spoke of care for the creation, but he's not a liberal Protestant. So if they're chucking out Rick Warren and the 19,000 members, I think, of Saddleback, how 
how much of a setback is that to the whole Southern Baptist Church? Because in other areas like race relations, certainly in fits and starts, it was starting to liberalise. But we see it going back on that because one of the controversies that has emerged is a recognition that probably a disproportionate number of churches that could be affected by this are black churches because they have a number of women on staff with the title of pastor. And we've seen a lot of things in recent years with this current right-wing leadership that indicates that they're backsliding on these issues of race. Yeah, I mean, Rick Warren is hardly a liberal. I mean, what's interesting for me to watch this is that a lot of the people who have been pushed out recently are people who had benefited by the fundamentalist takeover of the Southern Baptist Convention that happened in the 80s and 90s when truly moderate and progressive Baptists were pushed out by the fundamentalist. And now they have begun to fight with among themselves. And these people, they're calling them woke. These people are not woke. <laughs> they're still incredibly conservative theologically, but there are just a few differences. And at this sort of moment in American culture, those are differences that get identified as somehow being liberal and woke, which is not necessarily true. I think this is all about power anyway. I don't think it's about theology. I think it gets framed as theology, but I think it's really about who has power. Susan, by the way, you're not just a professor. You're also, or you were, an ordained Southern Baptist pastor. Um, What's your situation now? (laughs) Well, I'm still ordained because, again, that theology that says, you know, everything happens in the local church means that if a local church ordains you, your ordination goes with you and only that local church could take it back. And I was a member of a quite progressive church that ordained me. I joined the United Church of Christ, which is the most progressive denomination in the United States. It was the first to ordain women, the first to accept LGBT people as full members and ministers. And I've held on to my ordination because at the core, I am Baptist. I tell people I'm a Baptist in exile in the United Church of Christ. (laughs) (laughs) Professor Susan Shaw of Oregon State University. And that's the show. You can find us at ABC Listen. Thanks to Anita Barrow and Nathan Turnbull. I'm Andrew West. Join us again for the Religion and Ethics Report. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.